Hello, I'm Marcus Louth and welcome to the latest edition of the UFO Insight Podcast, where we examine all things UFOs and aliens, conspiracies and mysteries, and all aspects of the paranormal. Okay, today we'll examine some of the most intriguing UFO sightings and encounters to have unfolded in Scotland. And for its size, Scotland is arguably one of the most active locations on the planet, and these incidents range from close-up encounters with UFOs to harrowing cases of alien abduction. Perhaps the best place to start when looking at UFO and alien encounters in Scotland is with an incident that unfolded on the morning of November 9th, 1979, just outside of Livingston. On the morning in question, Robert Taylor decided to pull his vehicle to the side of the road so he could stretch his legs and allow his dog to do the same. He did so on a quiet road near the M8 motorway. It was around 10.30am as he was walking through the woodland with the seven-year-old red setter, Lara. It was as he was coming up on a clearing among the fir trees that Taylor's morning, and indeed his life, was about to take a drastic turn. There in front of him, no further than 12 yards away, was a flying dome, or circular object that was suddenly in his line of sight. It appeared to be floating, slightly above the tops of the trees. The craft was close enough that he could make out the rough sandpaper-like texture of the black metallic material, an aroma of burning brakes suddenly seemed to fill the air. He noticed two objects that had fallen to the ground from the main craft. He would later describe these as looking like Second World War naval mines. Each of the strange objects had spikes all around them. They headed toward him, one to each side, making a strange noise against the ground as they moved. When they were level with him, an attachment with a spike on the end shot out of each one of them and attached themselves to each leg of his trousers. Of more concern to Taylor, he could feel a pulling sensation on his body, as if the craft was dragging him towards it. He began to panic and pull back from it, but his body didn't respond. As this was happening, a rotten choking smell filled his nostrils, immediately weakening his resistance to the pull as he gagged on whatever the aroma was. As he seemingly began to lose consciousness, the last sound he heard was the unsettling hissing of the object and the agitated barks of Lara. The next thing he knew, he was alone on the clearing floor. The object had vanished. As he picked up his face from the dirt and the leaves of the forest floor, he noticed how severely his legs ached. He also realised he couldn't bring himself to speak in an attempt to calm Lara, who was still barking somewhere in the immediate vicinity. After gathering his thoughts, Taylor made his way to his vehicle. Although some time had passed, he stood on the spot where he had left it. It was a short joy, however, try as he might, the car would no longer start, as if drained of power by an unknown source. He would continue his journey on foot. When he arrived home, his family was aghast at his torn clothing, as well as the cuts and bruising to his face and arms. He would inform his wife, Mary, quite bluntly, that he had been attacked by a spaceship when she asked him what had happened, herself in deep shock at the state of her husband. Unsure what to do, Mary informed her husband's employer and boss of the incident, Malcolm Drummond. He would always state that Robert was not a person to make up stories. He had no doubt whatsoever of his genuineness or lack thereof. Drummond would organise a search of the area where the incident took place using other forestry workers. However, there was nothing untoward discovered. That something had happened to Taylor, though, was surely beyond doubt. With this in mind, the Livingston police were notified of the attack and would shortly arrive at the Taylor home to investigate. 
Given that Taylor had been physically attacked and he had the shredded clothes and marks to prove it, the police would treat the incident as a crime. They had Taylor take them back to the site of the encounter so they could see it for themselves. Headed by Detective Inspector Ian Wark, they would discover strange ladder-shaped impressions on the ground where Taylor claimed the incident had unfolded. Furthermore, they also noted two indention rows right where Taylor claimed the two spiked objects had moved towards him on either side. This corroborated his version of events of him being dragged toward the object. His torn trousers went off for scientific analysis, the conclusion being that the damage appeared to be in line with the machine-like object gripping and pulling him. In short, every indication so far was that he was telling the truth. Although they might not have believed Taylor was attacked by a vehicle from outer space, the police very much believed he was attacked by something, and a criminal investigation was opened. The track marks of the machines and vehicles used by the forestry workers in the area were all examined in an attempt to locate a match to the markings. None of them matched. Flight records of the airspace over Livingston were also examined. No helicopters or small airplanes were overhead that day. The grounds where the incidents had taken place were even examined, in the event that evidence of a crane that might have lifted some kind of machine into the clearing might be found. No such evidence was uncovered, and with the ground being soft from the rain, these markings would have been clear. Ultimately, although they could not explain the encounter, the police were certain of Taylor's credibility. Inspector Light stated they had no reason to doubt anything about what he was telling them, adding that everyone they had spoken to who knew Taylor claimed he was just not make a story up like that. Perhaps because of the police involvement, public interest in the encounter soared, with local and national media coverage, and as we might imagine, with the intense interest, many theories and suggestions as to what actually happened that November morning in 1979 also surfaced. If we take out the possibility that Taylor witnessed a genuine extraterrestrial vehicle of some kind, what else might explain this most bizarre event? Some suggest that Taylor merely suffered an intense illusion, possibly due to an epileptic fit. However, there is no evidence of any such seizures in Taylor's medical history, and even if something had triggered off this one-off fit, it is highly unlikely that he would have recovered sufficiently as quickly as he did in order to walk home from where the incident occurred. There have also been suggestions that ball lightning might be responsible for the incident, with Taylor perhaps coming too close and ultimately confused by what he was seeing. Once more, however, this explanation is hardly watertight, not least as Taylor specifically recalled seeing a metallic machine-like craft as opposed to ball lightning, which even then would have been easy to identify. There are others who wonder whether the machine witnessed that day was some kind of top-secret military vehicle, if this was the case, though, where was it produced, by who, and whose was it? Was the purpose of the attack on Taylor merely to allow this futuristic vehicle to escape? If this was the case, however, we might expect that something very similar would have entered the public domain in the decades since. Might this not be a UFO, but some kind of vehicle from another dimension, or even the ancient past, that appeared for a very short time due to some kind of rip in time and reality? Might there be some energy forces in this region of Scotland that somehow produce these portals that allow such vehicles to enter our world from their world and realm of existence? 
Of course, there are some who believe the incident to be a very clever hoax, one designed to attract UFO tourists to the area for the financial betterment of the region. However, as Ron Halliday points out, this notion is fanciful, simply because it is not beneficial for the region simply because the area was largely industrial urban Scotland, and essentially not Loch Ness. Besides, business opportunities were already well on their way to becoming Scotland's Silicon Glen, home to computer and associated industries. One sceptic of the case, Stuart Campbell, claimed in his book The UFO Mystery Solved that the markings discovered on the ground were likely from equipment being used in the area by water authority workers. However, when he spoke to these workers, who had indeed operated in the nearby area, they claimed that none of the equipment had been stored in the region Taylor had his encounter. Despite this, Campbell persisted that he suspected they were not being truthful, further suggesting they might have used the area to store equipment without permission. As Holliday points out, Taylor was a regular visitor to the area with his dog and claimed he had not once seen any such equipment there. In short, the encounter remains both unexplained and difficult to dismiss convincingly. Our next encounter, while no less strange, was a little more intense. On the evening of August 17, 1992, at around 8pm, Gary Wood and Colin Wright were driving along a quiet road near Edinburgh on their way to Tarbrat, a small village in East Lothian. They were due to deliver a satellite television system to a friend in the village. However, the journey was one that would change both of their lives forever. It was just as the pair had driven past a reservoir when they noticed something strange for the first time. Overhead was a strange black object moving in their direction. Unlike an airplane or helicopter, however, there were no lights on the underside or anywhere else. The strange object appeared rounded on the underside, and it appeared to have three parts. It was approximately 20 feet over their car and appeared to be around 30 feet wide. Furthermore, the bizarre object had a shiny smooth look to its exterior and appeared windowless. Both men later agreed that the object appeared unusual and certainly not like any object they would have expected to see in the skies over Scotland or anywhere else. Then, according to the government files on the incident, the object dropped a curtain of white light directly in front of the witness's car. The strange curtain stretched right across the road, leaving the pair no option but to continue into the strange shimmering glow. Believing that the best option was to increase his speed so he could get through it quicker, Gary pressed down hard on the accelerator. As he drove into it, he would recall that it had the appearance of a detuned television set with multiple flickering lights. Moments after the vehicle penetrated the strange blanket-type beam, each of them blacked out. It wouldn't be until the two men underwent hypnotic regression that the details of what followed after the car had entered the light were revealed. We should note that these details come to us mainly from media reports several months before the Ministry of Defence came into possession of the case, although the details of the hypnosis sessions are not detailed in the Ministry of Defence report. According to the details of these sessions, told by Gary to the media, the next thing he realised after driving into the light was standing outside the car. However, he wasn't sure exactly where he was standing. Everything around him was completely dark, with not even the suggestion of light anywhere. So much so, he couldn't see where the car was, nor could he locate Colin. It was around this time that he began to suspect he might have died. Several seconds after this thought entered his mind, he would seemingly black out once more. The next thing he knew, he was back inside the car, which was moving erratically all over the road. What's more, he could hear Colin screaming at him to watch the road and control the car. 
Despite his mind still coming to terms with where he was and what had happened, Gary managed to bring the vehicle to a halt. And we should note that some media reports state that the vehicle was on the wrong side of the road, with some even claiming that the vehicle was stationary when Gary and Colin came to following the bizarre and unnerving encounter. Whatever the nature of these discrepancies in the general reporting of the incident, the details of what occurred during these blackouts are even more disturbing. After sitting quietly for several moments, the two men would look at each other. Each could tell by the look in the other's eyes that both had experienced the same bizarre encounter, even if they had no idea what had just happened to them. They would take a moment to get a breath of fresh air. As they did, it was obvious that the strange black object was now gone, as was the equally strange wall of light that had dropped from above. After taking several moments to gather their thoughts, they would re-enter the car and set off back on their journey to the small village of Tarbrax. However, it was when they arrived at their friend's home that the very real suggestion in the men's minds that something truly out of the ordinary had taken place began to swirl. As Gary brought the car to a stop, he would reach down to unclip his seatbelt. However, when he did so, he realised that his seatbelt was not clipped in. He had completed at least the second part of the journey without wearing it. This was obviously odd, especially as he was certain he had put it on when setting off earlier that evening. He let the thought go for now and began unloading their cargo with Colling before carrying it to the door of their friend. Once there, they knocked and waited. However, after several moments when no answer came from inside the property, Gary knocked again. A few moments later, a window from the second floor of the house opened. The men's friend, himself looking tired and dazed, poked his head out and asked why they were knocking on his door at such a late hour. This puzzled Gary, who expected the time to be around 10.40pm. When he stated this to his friend, who was still peering out of the upstairs window, he was informed it was in fact almost 1am. Gary protested once more, but when he was shown proof of the time, a cold wave went over him. Somehow, and with no memory of the time, he and Colin had lost around two hours. It was at this point that a friend inside the house began to realise that something extraordinary must have taken place on their journey. He came downstairs a moment later and let the two men into the house. Both would begin to tell of just what they had seen in the sky, as well as of the truly strange curtain of light that dropped from the sky forcing their car to drive directly into it. Their friend would provide each of the men with a piece of paper so that they could draw what they had seen. The three men would speak for several hours of the incident. Neither Gary or Colin nor their friend would come up with any reason or explanation for the strange happenings. By the time the two visitors left their friend's home, it was almost dawn. They would both decide to take a different route back to Edinburgh. Gary, in particular, would experience a state of severe tiredness over the following days. This, it would appear, was compounded by the fact they began to have trouble sleeping. When he did manage to sleep, he would suffer from intense and strange nightmares. All of these would contribute to Gary suffering from severe headaches, which would lead him to visit his doctor. However, despite a thorough examination, there was nothing to be found wrong with him. Neither of the men wished to report the incident to the police, nor did they, at least initially, wish to speak with the newspapers or other media outlets. Each feared the ridicule they would receive if they did so. They did, however, make a report of the incident to the British UFO Research Association. Following this, Guy would begin to read more and more UFO literature in order to understand what had happened that evening in the summer of 1992. He would eventually discover strange phenomena investigations, and then ultimately Malcolm Robinson, who would conduct extensive investigation and research on the incident. 
It was through Robinson that the suggestion of hypnotic regression would first surface, and while both men were nervous of the prospect at first, they would eventually agree to undergo to some this controversial procedure. The initial sessions would be conducted by respected Scottish hypnotherapist Helen Walters. The sessions were as intriguing as they were explosive, and the more sessions they would undergo, the more details would surface. Eventually, between the two men's accounts, a fuller picture would emerge. It would appear that when the car entered the strange curtain of light, the vehicle had come to a stop. Then, several small humanoids would approach their car, three on each side. Then the doors on each side suddenly opened. Gary, according to Collins' recollections, was placed on a strange stretcher that moved through the air without any of the strange entities even touching it. It was, he would state, as if the stretcher was floating through the air. Colin, however, would seemingly recall walking along a strange ramp that led inside the strange craft that each had witnessed moments earlier. Once inside, he was in a strange room that was lit by a dazzling light, and this is perhaps an interesting detail. We have mentioned before that many people who claim to have been on board the UFO tell of this strange light, and what's more, on many occasions, witnesses speak of this light as not having a definite source. While we do not know if this is the case here, it is perhaps something to keep in mind. The next thing he recalled, he was in a strange circular corridor. One of the strange creatures was leading him somewhere. It was here that Colin's memory began to appear to him in jumps, as if he too blacked out. Colin's next memory was of being in a featureless room with strange curved walls. The only feature in the room was a chair in the centre. Once more, this is a detail that comes up often in alien abduction encounters. A round room with only a chair in the middle. Once more, such details are suggestive of the same intelligence behind these strange occurrences. Even more intriguing is the detail that the room had an organic feel to it, as if it was alive. Colin's mind then jumped forward once more. Now he was naked and sat on the chair in the middle of the room. As he sat there, some kind of strange examination of his body was taking place. As this was happening, he would recall looking up at the ceiling of the room. It was corrugated and translucent, and diffused lighting was seeping through from somewhere beyond it. From this scene, his memory jumped forward again. Now, still naked, he was in a strange see-through container. It was, he would recall, similar to glass or perspex. Around his ankles were straps. Perhaps, though, the most unsettling image was of the other glass-like containers he could see all around him, each of which contained people, all of whom were also naked. Then, as he looked around the room, he witnessed several humanoid figures, much taller than the others who had approached the car and led him to the strange craft. This is when he realised that three of the strange humanoids were heading in his direction. As this was happening, the container began to frost up, meaning he could no longer see through it. This began to make him panic, so much so that he almost began to break down in tears. Whether it was coincidence or not, as soon as this feeling hit him, the frosting in the container began to fade away. Then, following this, a strange device went into motion a short distance away and approached the container. Two glowing red lights were present on the device, which moved up and down as if it was scanning him. As we will examine shortly, Gary's recollections would ultimately prove to be as explosive as Colin's. He would, however, prove to be much more receptive to the notion of exploring just what had happened to him that evening than Colin would be. He would choose to pull away from the media and would refuse to give interviews on the subject. In fact, some reports even suggest that he would reject the incident entirely. 
This is perhaps an interesting notion, that an experience could be so traumatic that the subject would deny that it happened, or might just in the interest of balance. It suggests that while something strange did happen, the details that were recalled after the incident were not entirely truthful. There are also further intriguing revelations to be examined in the Release Ministry of Defence files. For now though, we'll turn our attention to the recollections of Gary Wood. Perhaps lending credibility to each other's accounts, the revelation that would come from Gary's regression sessions was very much in sympathy with his friends. For example, he would find himself in an almost identical circular room, although instead of a chair, he would find himself laid flat on a table in the middle of the room. Even stranger, although there was nothing physically holding him down, he was unable to sit up. Above him was a lens-like device that appeared to be twisting and turning as it moved through the room. As it moved, a strange whooshing sound accompanied it. As he watched this device move into position above him, he noticed a long, thin, translucent arm had stretched outward directly over his chest. Then, without warning, this extended arm suddenly dropped downward, landing near his shoulder. This appeared to cause great pain to Gary, so much so that it would actually cause him to come out of his hypnotic state during the session. He would, however, once back under, recall further details, albeit like Colin, some of which were random and appeared to have gaps missing from them. For example, one particularly bizarre memory he would speak of is of a hole opening on the floor containing a gel-like liquid. Out of this bizarre substance, a column would rise and form, sending out an electrical noise. Much like before, an extension moved out of the tin-like device and stretched outward towards him. It was eventually level with each of his eyes, allowing Gary to see two glaring red lights at the end of the device. Then, things turned even stranger. It was around this time that he would notice there was considerable activity around the pool of liquid in the floor. It appeared as if it started to vibrate somehow. He continued to watch, and much to his amazement and horror, a tall and incredibly thin, frail-looking creature emerged from it. Gary would recall how it appeared as though it was an incredible strain for this bizarre entity to free itself from the gel-like substance. He would further recall that the entity appeared very similar to a grey alien, but one that was emaciated. In fact, its skin appeared brutally stretched around its thin skeletal frame, with the rib area looking particularly discoloured and bruised. Another particularly intriguing detail of the episode was of a smaller figure with a heart-shaped face that contained strange painted symbols and stripes. He would further recall how these markings were very similar to what you might expect to see on the face of a person from one of the Native American tribes. He didn't understand how, but he would ask this figure telepathically, Why are you doing this? To which the figure responded, Sanctuary, we are already here, and we are coming here. This apparent two-way telepathic communication would continue. The figure would inform Gary that their own existence was much the same as that of human beings. It would state, for example, that they also had concerns and needs. Maybe most intriguing and disturbing in equal measure is the assertion that human beings in many ways are advanced, but they had been capped. Just what it might have been meant with the claim that they had been capped. Indeed, it is a statement that has been pondered over by all who have examined the case. Might it be, as some researchers believe, that human beings in the distant past have undergone a collective genetic change from an external source, which has resulted in our potential being essentially slowed down? It is certainly food for thought. There are many other UFO encounters from Scotland. A great many of these sightings take place in an area known as the Falkirk Triangle. The region lies between Falkirk and Bonnybridge to the east and west respectively, and Stirling to the north. 
The reports are as strange as they are varied, but they are certainly consistent. Reports of orbs, lights, strange objects and even spaceship landing on the ground are all on record. Even claims of portals, ancient stargates and wormholes have been subject to the extensive investigations. Since the early 1990s, however, such reports have skyrocketed. In 1992, a local businessman, James Walker, claimed to have seen strange lights in the sky while driving home. They appeared to be following his vehicle, and the more he studied them, the more he could see they were in fact a distinct triangular shape. Another report came the same year from Isabella Sloggett and her daughter Carol. While enjoying a walk in the countryside and heading towards the small town of Bonnybridge, they could clearly see a circle of light ahead of them. They continued along their route, but would keep the strange lights in their sight. They were later described seeing the lights land in a field in front of them. Equally intrigued and unnerved, they proceeded on with their journey. Moments later, a football-sized blue object hovered above them and would descend and block their path. Isabella would state later in her report that following this, a door opened on the craft in front of them. They each then heard a howl-like sound which terrified them so much they would turn and run. The small town of Bonnybridge would appear to be the epicentre of these UFO sightings. In 2015, over 300 reports would come from this small town alone. What's more, many of the sightings have multiple witnesses, making them altogether more credible. In 1989, for example, a fire crew would report a red object that approached their fire engine as they battled a fire. According to the report, it would hover for several moments before speeding away. However, a second object then immediately appeared, this one an intense bright white. Similarly, it would head towards the crew before zooming off. In 1991, two photographers witnessed strange lights, which they at first believed to be helicopters moving through the sky. They would hover for several moments before changing their location. What would alert the pair to their strangeness was the complete lack of sound. Another such sighting would occur in 1994, in front of an entire team of cleaners on their way to their shift at the Grangemouth oil refinery. All clearly witnessed persistent and bizarre flashing lights in the sky overhead. Scottish politician William Buchanan would even bring evidence of the sightings to the attention of successive British Prime Ministers in John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. He recommended serious investigation and resources to the area, stating residents were seriously scared about the sightings. Each time the response came back that the Ministry of Defence is satisfied there is no evidence regarding concerns of UFOs. As usual, we only have time to examine a mere handful of the many UFO encounters to have taken place over Scotland. And, with many more encounters on record, we will almost certainly return here in a future podcast episode. Is there something special about Scotland that attracts these apparently otherworldly vehicles and their occupants? Whatever it might be, sightings of strange aerial vehicles continue to be reported from this part of the world regularly today. Indeed, like several other places around the world, Scotland could very well be a hotspot of UFO activity. For now though, I'll simply thank you for joining me, and be sure to leave any thoughts in the comments, and check out the links for further reading on some of the cases we have been discussing here today. Remember to subscribe to our channel, and follow us on social media to keep up to date on future podcasts, articles and videos. And if there's anything you want us to feature in future podcast episodes, then get in touch at marcus at ufoinsight.com. Until next time, goodbye, and take care. Thank you.